Hi all, Thomas here. Just a quick disclaimer. Now, most of you will probably know that the show was on hiatus for quite a while. During that hiatus, I wasn't doing nothing for the show. Where I could, I was working on some episodes. And one of the series that I worked on was one called Technology, Inequality and Catastrophic Risks. And it brings together some of the themes that we've talked about in this show, how technology will influence society, how we can respond to global catastrophic risks. Um, These episodes were scripted before the coronavirus pandemic. Um, I've decided that the best way to deal with this is to just release them as they were um, without modifying anything or changing them now. And then at the end, I will look at how some of these predictions and uh, influences and ideas might relate to our current situation. Um, So what you're getting really is a snapshot of a year or so ago when I first started working on these. And uh, hopefully, you know, you find it enlightening and can enjoy it. Okay. Hi all, and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. This episode is the start of a series, and our theme is technology, inequality, and global catastrophic risk. And I'm going to be talking about where these three ideas, uh, technology, inequality, and catastrophic risks, intersect, how they might fuel each other, feed into each other, and what we can hope to do to live in a fairer and, hence, I believe, a less risky world, which is all in a day's work. So in writing the Teotwauki specials from a few years ago, which predominantly focused on all of the ghastly future projections for how the world might end, I've read some colourful writing about how we should think about, categorise and consider the risks that could lead to terrible events on this sort of species-wide scale. We're talking about mass casualties, breakdowns in social order, a severe depression in what you might call progress for our whole species, and perhaps even the extinction of humanity or even all life on Earth. These are weighty topics, and so often it seems to be so far into the realm of abstraction that it's difficult to know how it can possibly relate to the world today. We look at the decisions that politicians are making, we look at the decisions that business leaders are making, we look at the decisions that we make in our own personal lives, and we think, how is any of this anywhere near within our control? How can we talk about decisions that we make having impact on a whole species or millions of other people? And these things can often seem entirely out of our control. In the case of supervolcanoes and asteroid strikes, for example, they were once called acts of God for a reason. They're difficult to predict, they don't stem from any clear human actions. For a natural pandemic to take place, it almost seems like a unique uh, confluence of events that uh, happens to give rise to the vulnerability to the pandemic and the pandemic spreading and so on. You need the right virus to have the right properties when it jumps over to humans or reappears after a while. It seems like rolling a vast cosmic dice and hoping you continue to get lucky. And when you talk to people who study pandemics and epidemics, quite often they're almost surprised that we haven't had the next big one that they're constantly waiting for. It'll be similar for the case of people who are worried about earthquakes, volcanoes, all kinds of things. Now there are threats like that, but there's usually some way that humans can intervene. We can dream of tracking and deflecting all of the asteroids, stamping out the would-be pandemics at the start, responding effectively to natural disasters, mitigating climate change, building responsible and safe AI, and electing leaders who won't use nuclear weapons. I mean, it's difficult to say that any of these apocalyptic scenarios are inevitable. I don't think they're even close to being inevitable. We can definitely avoid them all. 
They can all be addressed if we understand the risk, which is why it's so important to examine these risks in as much detail as possible, with as much understanding of the causes and consequences as we can possibly muster. It's like noticing that you suddenly have some strange new medical symptoms. Our instinct is to ignore it, to try not to think about it, to hopefully let it go away. This is an attitude we can have when we feel afraid and powerless, but of course, regardless of whether we have a cold or a serious illness, it's best to find out what it is and what we can do about it. I don't think things are inevitable. I don't really hold to that kind of historical determinism, mainly because I think people who believe in historical determinism generally end up being embarrassed by history's tendency to keep going. Marx and Engels held that capitalism would inevitably collapse under the weight of its own contradictions, leading to a socialist utopia, and it hasn't happened yet. Francis Fukuyama, when the Cold War was ending, is widely uh, nowadays and unfairly really criticised for saying that he wrote this piece, The End of History, the idea that westernised liberal democracy, having triumphed over fascism, Nazism, then socialism and communism, totalitarianism of the USSR and so on, that this westernised liberal democracy was triumphant and eventually, once all of the kinks were ironed out, the world would look like that and that this was the final form of governance. I mean, look at it a few decades on now. It seems naive to say that history ended in 1989. Even Fukuyama admitted as much in a recent op-ed, although he insisted that society was definitely evolving towards some eventual state where everyone was governed by liberal democracies. This, as opposed to totalitarian systems like Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia or anarchy or monarchies or anything like that. But the convulsions that we're going through in global geopolitics at the moment makes you think that anyone saying they know where this is headed is probably deluding themselves. I mean, maybe historical and political development does have an end state, but I like to look at the system obviously like a physicist. When we have a system of equations, a, a, a physical system of interacting parts that we look for, we, we look for certain things, we look for steady states in the system. And then we assume that eventually, if nudged around enough, the system will probably find itself in a stable state. So what do stable states look like for the human race? Well, it's pretty obvious that there's one state for the human race that is very stable, and that is everyone is dead. Because once that happens, there's no motive, there's no driving force. It would be a stationary point in your system of equations that would describe humanity. No matter how complicated it is, there's always going to be terms that depend on whether you have humans or not. If you have no humans, then the history of the human race is over. One could also argue that everyone is fine and no longer wants for anything, or humans evolve to a point where they no longer need anything else, or colonise some part of the universe, or humans change so fundamentally that they can no longer be classified as human in the way that we think of, or AI takes over and waits until the universe gets cold enough to do enough calculations. These are all other steady states that you can imagine this really complicated system evolving towards. But of course, predicting that we're anywhere near a steady state, or that the final transformation will take us there is underway, or anything like that, or even that any of them are particularly inevitable, that seems foolish. And yet it's undeniable that this last century, since the nuclear bomb has arrived, we've had an ever-multiplying potential for existential risks, genuine pathways that could take us to a bad game-over screen for the species. And this all stems from our rapidly expanding technology. Technology makes cyber warfare something to fear because it means that we're all dependent on a very complex interconnected system. It allows various dictators to kill millions with an order if they wanted to. It allows us to imagine bioweapons and artificial intelligence that exceeds our capacity, both of which might, in their own ways, mindlessly perhaps, do away with us. And there's another trend that's also taken place since the Second World War. It's by no means been uniform, there are always exceptions of course. But it's fair to say that within societies, inequality has risen too. Now I want to persuade to you that uh, inequality and existential risk are intimately linked, and that an unequal society can 
shepherd these catastrophic risks and is indeed a kind of catastrophic risk for the species in itself. So you're probably already aware of all of the statistics about global inequality and inequality within societies, but it's worth just throwing a few of them around so that we know what we're talking about here. Looking globally, 71% of the world's population shares a measly 3% of the world's wealth. Meanwhile, almost half of global wealth is owned by just 1% of individuals. So if you think about that, that means that this 1% of the world's individuals, which may well include you and me, if we're listening to a podcast and making a podcast, they own almost half of global wealth, while 71% of the world's population shares a measly 3% of the world's wealth. Which means that that 1%, if they were willing to sacrifice just over 5% of their wealth, could double the wealth of 71% of the world's population. Which is pretty wild when you think about it. At the very top, the ratio gets even worse, with 12.8% of the world's wealth owned by 0.004% of the world's population. In other words, an average super-rich person in that top 0.004% owns as much as 76,000 average poor people, where 71% of the world qualifies as poor. We have a situation where individual people own more wealth than entire countries. According to an Oxfam report, the richest eight people combined own as much wealth as half of the world's population by themselves. I say all this not to demonise rich people. For many of these statistics, I'm closer to that top 1%, these quote-unquote selfish people who hoard the world's wealth, than the bottom 50%. In fact, an income of around $32,000 a year will put you straight in the top 1% of earners. And if you earn more than $16,000 a year, you're still in the top 10%. I'm not going to ask, obviously, how much money everyone makes, but that will give us all a sense of perspective, I think. And this is not to say that things are necessarily all doom and gloom either. In fact, global income inequality is gradually falling as globalisation takes hold. Now, this brings its own problems to societies that were once the wealthiest, and inequality is still shocking and only falling slowly. It's essentially because the baseline was so low. If a billion people lived on 50 cents a day, and that gets boosted to a dollar, then the cost is only a few hundred billion dollars a year less money than the US government, for example, borrows every year in its deficit, but you've doubled the income of a billion people. But inequality remains incredibly high, and there are powerful forces fighting to keep it that way. Globalisation may be dragging up the poor, but it's dragging up the rich far more, as evidenced by the fact that in the last 20 years, the incomes of the rich have grown 182 times faster than the incomes of the poor. Otherwise, of course, it probably wouldn't be allowed to happen. You will quite regularly read arguments, for example, from people like Steven Pinker is associated with this, and there's a whole bunch of others too, who point to the incredible progress that has been made in many different domains, as evidence that things are getting universally better for everyone. And indeed, the statistics are impressive. We've completely wiped out diseases like smallpox, we're reducing deaths from all kinds of preventable diseases all the time. The average person in the West today lives in luxury that would have been unknown to all but the kings of lords of a few hundred years ago, and the rest of the world is gradually catching up. Infant mortality is down, life expectancy and literacy are up, wars and violent conflicts in general are growing less frequent over time, etc, etc. All of this is true, of course, and shouldn't be forgotten, but I find it difficult to get too enthusiastic about these things, because I wonder that there's... I worry that there's a tendency, particularly amongst some of the people who deploy this type of argument, to say, oh, the world is getting endlessly better, obviously, as if this is some kind of excuse for inaction as if things aren't still radically and horribly unfair in society and in the world in which we live, as if there's no injustice just because most people are statistically somewhat better off than they were decades ago. Because ultimately it depends on what you're comparing to, doesn't it? 
For example, one of the favourite statistics of this kind of optimist is that, for example, over the last 25 years we've had a billion fewer people in extreme poverty. That's great, but look at what it actually entails. Extreme poverty, by this definition, is defined as living on less than $1.90 a day. 700 million people still live in extreme poverty. So even if they all could all live on exactly nothing, then we could have nobody in extreme poverty for around $500 billion a year, just by giving them that extra income. Between 2017 and 2018, the amount of wealth owned by billionaires, that's just over 2,000 people around the world who have more than a billion dollars each, increased from $7.7 trillion to $9.1 trillion, so by about $1.5 trillion. So, in other words, it's great to say that yes, there are fewer people than ever in extreme poverty. But, if we were willing to have a society that was just fractionally fairer, that is to say billionaires get to keep all of their money and their wealth can actually continue to grow, but only, say, two-thirds as fast, then we could utterly eradicate extreme poverty overnight. So should we really be happy with this state of affairs, as a billion people scrape by on combined income that 2,000 billionaires would hardly notice missing? Should we really be happy with the fact that they're getting slightly richer when, again, you could still have billionaires and they could still have their fortunes growing by billions every year and there would be no extreme poverty whatsoever? I mean, is that the sort of society that you want to aspire towards? And of course, you can't simply reduce everything to a simple number. Saying that the world is getting endlessly better ignores what we're sacrificing and ignores what might be possible. The way our society is organised at the moment is environmentally unsustainable. We're consuming the Earth's natural resources at an astounding rate. And of course, risks can increase even as things get better. And when those improvements are driven by increasing levels of technology, you can argue that the risks are getting worse as well. So just to naively attempt to compare two states of the global society um, from, say, 2019 and 1970 and say that things are much, much better now than they were then, or that this is some justification of how things have run at the moment, I think is naive. And I think the people who advance this argument know that it's naive, but they feel like they're uh, making an exaggerated case to compensate for the uh, mainstream pessimism. And to an extent, maybe the mainstream is too pessimistic, but I don't feel like you can advance hyper-simplistic arguments such as we're all doomed or everything is brilliant, there's nothing to worry about. This is just lazy thinking, this is just how people want to uh, imagine that they understand the world uh, by reducing it down to all of its uh, complexity and just saying none of that matters, everything's great, everything's terrible. We need to try and resist that if we can, we need to respect that things are complicated and try and say more about them than can fit in a single tweet. Within societies, though, inequality is also increasing. So the Gini coefficient often gets used to express inequality uh, within societies on a scale from zero to one. And it's based on the distribution of wealth and income within that society. So zero would be a perfectly equal society where everyone had the same wealth or the same income, in the case of the income Gini coefficient. And one is a perfectly unequal society where one person owns all of the wealth. Now, as we've just pointed out, trying to boil down something as complex, multifaceted, and uniquely human as inequality into a single number is not ideal, because you miss all of that nuance and detail that was so important. But it does serve a purpose in the same way as categorising climate change scenarios by the kind of temperature increase we'd expect also serves a purpose, even though the important details are missed. 
So many have pointed out that, for example, the Gini coefficient does underestimate the impact of inequality due to the large fraction of big fortunes, and globally, the Gini coefficient was a pretty high 0.69. In the last 10 years, globalisation has caused it to dip to 0.65. I would say this is less a case of the world tending to become more equal, individual societies, as we shall see, are getting less and less equal, but just a case of globalisation allowing some of the really shocking disparities between countries to slightly erase over time. So in the US, the Gini coefficient in 1969 was around 0.35, since then, it's steadily climbed up to about 0.45. This is by the reckoning of the US Census Bureau. It's calculated in loads of different ways, like pre-tax and post-tax, income and wealth, so you have to be careful. But regardless of how you do it, in the last 50 years, all of the graphs, all of the inequality measures in the US have gone up. So the US is becoming a more and more unequal society. Same is true in the United Kingdom. Same in the growing, developing countries like China and India. The economies are growing rapidly for these countries, but the spoils are being shared out unequally. To give you an idea of what that means, 0.45, which is around the Gini coefficient of the US now, was also around the Gini coefficient estimated for the Roman Empire, back when one man, the emperor, would own thousands of slaves and also the entire richest country of the entire empire, Egypt, was considered his personal domain. He was hundreds of thousands of times richer than the senators, who were hundreds of thousands of times richer than the equestrians, who were thousands of times richer than all of the free people, although they were at least free. Although in Rome, slaves could actually buy their own freedom, and free people often sold their children into slavery when they fell on financial hard times, but I can't digress about Rome or we'll be here forever. 0.45 is not the highest Gini coefficient at all. South Africa, which struggles with the legacy of apartheid and extreme inequality, has a Gini closer to 0.6, or possibly even higher, and of course there are also things in South Africa where the region, regionally there's very, very big disparities between different regions of the country, uh, the former coal mining communities versus the cities and so on. And that gives you an idea of about as unequal any society there is on Earth today. But uh, the US once had a Gini coefficient of 0.5 at the height of the Gilded Age in the late 1920s and early 1930s. The Roaring Twenties that we're just getting back into now as I record this. Happy New Year. Picture Jay Gatsby, and you're basically there for the US at that time. So what happened then to reduce the Gini coefficient of above 0.5 to the low value that it had of 0.35 in the 1960s? Well, the Second World War happened. This major economic shock to the system resulted in huge changes. There were massive taxes on the rich, up to 90% in some cases, which were used to pay for the war. Uh, the population was mobilised for fighting, so there was less unemployment and underemployment, even the people who couldn't fight were taking up the jobs that were uh, vacated by uh, people in the army. And, you know, it, it's well known that the First and Second World War in Europe and America contributed a lot to women's liberation as well, because as the men went away to fight, the women were employed in factories and doing work that previously they hadn't got access to. So in this way, you can see how the shock to the system of the war upends all of these usual hierarchies, it changes all of these usual rules, and it actually reduces uh, inequality, not just in terms of economic inequality, but also social and political inequality. Because after all, it was after these big movements that large sort of women's suffrage movements uh, started to take place. The population, sorry, I should say, of course, there were women's suffrage movements before the war, but afterwards was when they were actually uh, noticed by those in power and when the contribution of women to society was uh, completely undeniable for a lot of men and 
ultimately the vote was relinquished uh, perhaps reluctantly to these movements um, but yeah, it's difficult to know whether or not that would have happened without the war but I just note that in, in countries I think in the UK the franchise was extended to women after the First World War and all this sort of thing that happened so it, it, it genuinely sort of seemed to be a turning point in those movements and then of course when you look at the impact of these mass mobilisation wars again you have capital that is accumulated wealth um, it becomes less valuable because the state is intervening, uh, it's confiscating wealth in some cases, things are getting destroyed uh, in the war. If you're a homeless person in Dresden and the entire city is bombed to rubble, then you lost far less than the guy with the mansion. As terrible as the event is, of course, everyone gets poorer, but the Gini coefficient comes down because people are at least equally ruined by the war. And then after all of this mass mobilisation warfare, you have all these social knock-on effects. People unionise, people who are disenfranchised want the right to vote and all this kind of thing. It's no coincidence that the National Health Service and many of the socialised benefits in the UK and Europe today that have kept us from becoming quite as unequal as the US, although still not great, these things arose after the Second World War when people wanted, after this big disruption, a new way of running society. And this is not a one-off event, though. I mean... Walter Scheidel, in his fantastic methodical survey of the topic, this book called The Great Leveller, which is an inspiration behind lots of what we're talking about today, along with Capital by Thomas Piketty, explains that essentially inequality is only ever reversed through these kind of catastrophes. He actually goes through all of human history, evaluating the Gini coefficient, like uh, Doctor Who with a doctorate from the London School of Economics. He goes from the 21st century to prehistoric cave dwellers, working out the income inequality when records weren't particularly good in the early prehistoric era based on, for example, who had the fancy flint in their grave goods and all this kind of thing. And across a huge, diverse range of societies throughout the world, he examines all of these things, and he comes to this inescapable, almost deterministic conclusion. And he argues that only revolutions, wars, and other catastrophes have historically reduced inequality. The rest of the time, inequality tends to creep up. Different amounts in different locations, with different policies and different economic conditions, but generally it creeps up over time. The only thing that seems to reduce inequality is some kind of large-scale catastrophe that reshapes society. And this is similar to what Piketty talked about in his uh, notable work Capital, where he was basically pointing out that all you need to do to have inequality rising in a society is to have the rate of return to capital, that is to say, the amount of money you get back from investing your wealth, exceeding the amount of money that you can kind of make on your own, if that makes sense. And once you have that in place, it's inevitable that uh, wealthy people will get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier because the rate at which they can get more money just back by being wealthy and investing things in the appropriate markets uh, will exceed the rate at which people can get uh, into uh, the wealthier strata of society. And so ultimately, you you have money, you make money, you continue to be wealthy, and this inequality is perpetuated and in fact gets worse and worse over time. And in a lot of ways, the law that this reminds me most of in physics is the second law of thermodynamics. Because the second law of thermodynamics, as you know from our uh, episodes on this and uh, your own knowledge, entropy, which is the state of disorder of a system, uh, always increases. No matter what interactions happen between different parts of a system, they always happen in such a way that entropy uh, increases, this disorder increases, and this gradually happens over time, and eventually, you know, this is the law that determines, uh, at least in the eyes of Ludwig Boltzmann, uh, the 
ultimate fate of our universe to head towards a state of ultimate disorder. And the interesting thing about that is the bit that you need to be careful about when you're working out problems with entropy is um, in an isolated system. So the system can't have any external influences uh, arising, uh, arising upon it, or you have to consider the system as a whole, if that makes sense. So what do I mean by this? Well, let's use a very, very simple example and imagine that I am uh, taking a disorganized soup of atoms and I arrange them into a nice cubic lattice. Uh, you might think to yourself, okay, well, entropy has obviously gone down in this situation because uh, Thomas has done some tidying up and he's made the universe more ordered than it was before. Well, yes, that's true if you consider only the system of the atoms that I'm manipulating. But if you consider the whole system, not not the uh, non-isolated system of me uh, picking up these atoms and moving them into different locations as I want, but uh, including me myself, well... I will be giving off heat when I do this, uh, I'll be converting this mechanical energy into heat energy, that's going to make the atoms that are me more disordered, and it's going to uh, impact the surrounding area such, such that when you consider the whole system, all of the interacting parts, you see that actually it's getting more disordered over time. So this is similar to the sort of observation of globalization. What globalization is, in some sense, is different parts of the system, like uh, different baths of heat in physics, sort of coming together and interacting with each other. And within these individual systems, we can see that inequality is still going up because it's following this sort of thermodynamic law of uh, economics, if you like, where inequality tends to increase unless there's some external shock to the system. And inequality between parts of the system can always go down while they're interacting with each other. But if you look at the system as a whole, uh, without any sort of interacting parts, then you can imagine that perhaps the inequality over time, when we come to equilibrium, would tend to uh, rise again. So if, for example, we had uh, perfect interaction between all different countries in the world, or perfect free trade, or however you want to think about this, um, maybe at that point, once all of these big uh, reservoirs of inequality have died down, like sort of uh, heat baths passing temperature onto each other and so on, then we would inevitably eventually be left with the situation where we have one global economy where everyone is sort of equally unequal, if that makes sense. And so this is the sort of Piketty idea that inequality always increases uh, in these societies. And then the Scheidel analysis, uh, because Piketty in his book pointed out that there were some instances where this didn't happen in the Second World War, for example, because of this mass mobilisation warfare and because of the big government intervention that came about as part of the Second World War. And um, the Scheidel point out is just to sort of demonstrate that this tends to hold true across lots and lots of different societies and lots of different time periods with lots of different catastrophes and that you need that large-scale catastrophe to reshape society. So let's let's give a few more examples of how these catastrophes, uh, how the mechanism of these catastrophes reversing inequality actually works. So a perfect example is the Black Death in Europe. Uh, this reduced the population massively. If you fly over places like Britain now, you can look down on ruins of towns that were just never repopulated after the Black Death. Um, you can sort of see the outlines of them, uh, and there's lots of aerial photographs of that sort of thing. There were whole towns that were decimated, cities which lost a third of their population, all this kind of thing. But the Black Death had one positive effect for those who survived, because the population was reduced and the labour supply was reduced, which meant that actually the few farm labourers that were left could charge more for their labour, because there was more necessary for it, there, there was less supply. 
Um, and that, in turn, reduced inequality. Uh, then, of course, there were violent revolutions, we think, under the communists and the Bolsheviks in 1917, under Mao, uh, Chairman Mao in China, where rich people were basically murdered or arrested and their assets were forcibly seized and redistributed. I mean, that kind of event also reverses inequality and uh, reverses this climb of the Gini coefficient in peacetime, of course, through violent and uh, unpleasant means and also means that make a lot of people poorer. And the last of uh, Scheidel's four horsemen, along with this mass mobilisation warfare, violent revolution, plagues or natural disasters, is state failure. So the classic example here is when the Roman Empire left Britain in the 5th century and uh, the Roman Empire in the West collapsed almost altogether. There was no state around to impose order, things sort of generally collapsed into lawlessness and general anarchy, and as a result everyone got poorer because, you know, if there's no state around to stop people from stealing from you, then they can steal from you however they wish. Uh, Rome came and brought an aristocracy, wealthy bureaucrats and inequality with it, and when the state collapsed and everyone descended back into squabbling smaller kingdoms and loosely bound local fraternities of raiders and farmers, everyone got less wealthy and the inequality was also wiped out. And, you know, you can imagine that some of the reasons behind this are pretty obvious too. I mean, if there is a disaster, say a gigantic flood that wipes out everything, the poorest people lose relatively little, while rich people could lose out on millions. So here's the problem with all of this, of course, is that Equality is going up, which is brilliant. Uh, inequality is going down, which I think most people would be in favour of, but everyone is poorer. If mass death is involved, obviously the fact that there are fewer survivors allows people to band together, but that's not the best way to get people to cooperate, really, is it? And of course, you know, after these disasters as well, uh, quite often the tax rates on the highest earners can be very high. From 1941, right the way up until the early 1960s, the rate of tax in the US on the top earners never fell below 80% and was often even higher than that. So however you slice it, The Great Leveller is a fascinating read and a really troubling one, because on one level it seems to almost imply that living in an unequal society where inequality is growing is almost the price you pay for peacetime and not living through some great catastrophe. We know that societies can basically survive without these revolutions, even if unequal, providing that everyone feels the benefit of economic growth. But it hardly seems like a great prescription for peace to say, well, unfortunately the only way that we can live peacefully is to have a society with a huge amount of inequality and an awful uh, level of growing inequality and accumulating wealth at the top which is never distributed back to the bottom in any kind of way. And also, it's not really clear how that would make things peaceful. All we seem to know is that the, the causation, the correlation goes the other way. In other words, disasters reduce inequality, but not necessarily that there's anything intrinsically about how peacetime works that should increase inequality. On the other hand, then, the really scary thing when you think about the Great Leveller is... If inequality invariably increases up to a point, and then something catastrophic happens, like a war or revolution, what does that mean for us in a society where inequality is approaching the heights that it had in Europe in the 1930s? That decade was defined, in Europe again at least, I can only really talk about what I know about, which unfortunately is this very Western-centric perspective. Um, but that decade was defined in Europe at least by these violent revolutions from the far left and the far right. And then mass mobilisation warfares, as those large revolutions from the far left and far right sort of thrash their way out into geopolitics on the global stage. 
But these mechanisms for reducing inequality and maybe heading off some of these revolutions are all terrible. We don't want a natural disaster or mega pandemic. We don't want civilization to have to collapse to solve the problem of inequality. In the modern era of war, this kind of World War II mass mobilization warfare between similarly sized states just doesn't even happen anymore. And with nuclear weapons, any such war could escalate into an existential risk all by itself. So what's left? A violent revolution where the rich are slaughtered and their property is confiscated and redistributed, and that's our least violent option? I mean, we have to come up with something better than that. I really think we should. People should be thinking about how to come up with something better than that. The prospect that the only solution to our problem of growing inequality is to just wait for some horrendous catastrophe to level everything is really, really bleak and depressing, even for me, and I don't really shy away from bleak and depressing stuff here. And of course the really depressing thing actually is when we look at how society is evolving right now, many of the crises that we might foresee coming down the line are only likely to exacerbate this problem of inequality. Think about climate change. Climate change is like a really great engine of inequality. It's disproportionately caused by the actions of the wealthy, and disproportionately the burden of climate damages falls on the poor and vulnerable. The lowest income, predominantly tropical nations, will be hardest hit by extremes in heat, drought, floods and crop failures, we're already seeing it, and they have the least capacity to adapt to the changing climate. The dystopia from climate change is climate refugees, already more than 20 million people a year are displaced from their homes by extreme weather events, but the World Bank projects that this could rise to as many as 200 million a year by 2050 under climate change. In the most extreme and thankfully unlikely projections for climate change, but still possible, Parts of the tropics uh, in, the, in the sort of middle latitudes of the earth around the equator become uninhabitable. The heat stress from going outside in these regions in the summer is enough to kill you. So this is the kind of thing that keeps climate scientists like me up at night. And inevitably, this is only going to exacerbate inequality. Similarly, we can look to other trends, automation of people's jobs through machine learning or even robots. If this materialises on the scale that many people have predicted, this is only going to exacerbate inequality. For a start, wealthy people will have independent means of living. They won't have to take whatever work is going and compete with machines that work for free. People with independent wealth can take time to retrain and learn new occupations if their old occupation is being automated or facing this downward pressure on wages from robots. They have breathing space to do that in a way that people living paycheck to paycheck do not. And while people have argued that lots of traditionally higher paying, high educational attainment jobs could be partially or entirely automated in the future, it's likely to be, and in fact we're already seeing, that many of the jobs that are being automated away are the lower paying occupations. And then of course you have to look at this from the perspective of the bosses who are in charge of these things. If you can make your company 50 times more productive by firing your entire human workforce and replacing them with robots or algorithms, then all of that benefit from that increased productivity is not going to be felt in terms of uh, people getting paid wages, but purely in terms of profits for the company at the top. So I suppose some of the other trends that you might potentially foresee, for example, some of these technological apocalypses, um, like the ones we dreamt of in the Teotihuacan specials way back when, might end up being good levelers. A nuclear war certainly would. So would a superintelligent AI that wiped out the human race or enslaved us all or whatever. But if you're looking to that as your silver lining for this uh, inequality rising problem, I don't really think it's the ideal outcome. So here we are. The Great Leveller tells us that inequality tends to increase in societies over time until some disaster or large-scale external shock to the system shakes things out and inequality can fall again. We look around us now and we see that many of the trends and forces that will shape our worlds in the next century are only going to increase inequality. 
So I'm going to bring in the next sort of strand of things in the next episode here, which is going to talk about how technology, inequality and catastrophic risks are all intersecting together and how actually living in an unequal society can lead to more catastrophic risks for everyone, even the people who are currently on the benefiting side of this uh, inequality. And then I'm going to talk about perhaps some of the other intersections between these three uh, trends that are going to sort of define the world in the next couple of decades more and more, I think. And potentially whether there's any way that we can try and develop uh, a better society, one that's more insulated against these catastrophic risks and against this uh, inevitably rising inequality. I know this is a long way away from the kind of thing that we normally talk about here, but it's just a, a, a topic that I think is so fascinating and a problem that I think is is not really being addressed by a lot of the leading uh, thinkers that we have out there at the moment who are uh, clinging to old ideologies or untested ideologies or just arguing that more doses of the status quo is going to be enough to get us out of this situation and I think I, I certainly don't have all of the answers I'm not even sure that I have a grasp on the full question here and this is all way outside my normal wheelhouse which is as you know physics and science and technology to a slightly lesser extent but I hope that people find it interesting and I know that actually you know we did an episode on immortality that people found vaguely interesting and have written to me about uh, thank you for doing that if you have anything to say on this topic if you uh, disagree with me if you have another perspective that you want to put please let me know and I'll feature it in future shows if I think that it's uh, worthy but I just want people to have sort of open minds about this um, I, I, I'm not being prescriptive with a political solution here because I don't think that anyone has one, but I want to explore whether we can be more imaginative about the way things are currently constructed and if we can have foresight to the kind of issues that are going to arise if we continue to let things evolve in the way that they're evolving at the moment. So it's all kind of weighty stuff, and again, we're never going to come to any conclusive answers here, but I think just thinking about it um, and having these perspectives on the world is uh, is a useful thing to do. So if you want to get in touch to talk about uh, the show at the moment, uh, future directions, where we're going next, where we've been, uh, we're on Twitter at PhysicsPod, you can get us on Facebook. The best way to contact us is via the contact form at www.physicspodcast.com. Uh, that goes to my email. I know that a few of you have sent me emails that I'm still... Uh, need to get around to responding to it's been pretty strange over the last few weeks with uh, being unwell but I think I'm on the mend at the moment so fingers crossed uh, we can get back to a regular schedule for this show and we can continue to produce the content that you're all enjoying